and it's time for Midweek Media Watch. Hayden Donnell is in the studio with me. Kia ora, Emil. How was your summer, Hayden? It was initially terrible and later quite good. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. I'm glad to hear it. My um, son had a troika of illnesses. A troika of illnesses? Yep. Uh, he started off with strep butt. Did uh, you know that you can get strep throat I, in your butt? Is that right? That's not something I'm making up, and why would I make that kind of thing up? It's well, a weird accusation to throw at me. Uh, Google it if you don't believe it. There, He also got COVID, and then he got gastro. And so it was a bit of a terrible start to things. He threw up on the floor on Christmas Day. But after that, we had some lovely holidays. I was really just asking to be polite, but... I just wanted to share that with the world. You need to get it off your chest. Text 2101 if your holiday was the same. Troika as well. Lovely word. Thank you. Um, Let's talk media, though. And uh, you want to start this week with one of the big sources of news and debate this week, which uh, was the hui at Ngaroa Wahia. Yeah, to Rangawaiwai Marae. Mm-hmm. And there was plenty of interesting opinion and coverage of the hui. And I just want to recommend one. There was Aaron Smale did a piece for Newsroom. Headlined Māori Rise Up or Government Looks to Rewrite History. And it actually... It imparts a lot of that history. Its level of detail is really impressive. It takes everything from tensions over the corporate structure of uh, Tainui Iwi to sections of history on the land wars. It relates that to the modern day. It puts what's happening now in the context of the past. It's really good in that sense. So I'd recommend that. But I also wanted to highlight a couple of other opinion pieces, mainly because they stirred up a bit of controversy and mm-hmm. comment, particularly online. And one was by Mihi Forbes for RNZ, headlined The Wairua Brought Them. And another was by John Campbell for TVNZ. And that was headlined, I saw peace, joy and 10,000 people uniting to say no. Yeah, and both of those pieces um, really seemed to focus on the optimistic, the you know, the unity and hope at the Ngārua Wahia Hui, yeah? Yeah, and that's quite unusual because just as context, obviously, this is, there, there's a lot of discontent in the background here uh, for what some at the Hui described as the current government's anti-Māori or even white supremacist tendencies, more on that later. Mm-hmm. The political situation for Māori right now is described, in quotes from someone else in Mihi Ngārangi Forbes' piece, as a crisis. So there's real anger over stuff like decisions to disestablish the Māori Health Authority, remove Māori names from Crown agencies, and most particularly this apparent move or intention to table a bill that might redefine the treaty. And just to illustrate the strength of the feeling because it's a good clip. This is uh, a typically understated soundbite from Hone Harawera talking to Aniwa Hurihanganui on One News. The message from the masses was clear. The Treaty of Waitangi is under threat. Well, f***ing smashed and dare they think that they can, you know, take the treaty apart. Nobody's ever been able to do it before and these bastards won't be able to do it now. Yeah, so not exactly pulling his punches mm. there, uh, Mr. Harawira. Uh, but both of uh, Mihingarangi Forbes and John Campbell's pieces are really surprisingly almost almost buoyant in tone in a way. The, uh, both writers obviously inspired by this event, uh, by what Forbes describes as it's the wairua the, that was present that drew people to it, or what Campbell calls through the words of Tama Iti as its vibe. So, 
Yeah, Mihi Ngārangi Forbes, she says, the Māori culture is so alive it is exciting and no wonder why when there is a threat to the Māori way of life and being, Māori take affirmative action. So basically it's a, it's a, it's an expression of joy and reaction mm. to discontent. Yeah, and the, 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 I mean, the tone of both of those pieces took a bit of heat from uh, well, on social media and from other, even other other journalists, right, who, who found them a bit... Uh, florid and sort of what eerie, eerie fury over the top. Or, yeah. or, well, the the former editor of the Dominion, longtime Dominion Post columnist, Cal Dufresne, he he was maybe the most, oh, I guess, vehement in response. He called Campbell's failure of ob- he said, well, he accused John Campbell in particular of a failure of objectivity and impartiality in a blog titled "The John Campbell Question." <laughs> um, I thought it was a funny headline. <laughs> How do we address the John Campbell the John, question? The John, Campbell, the John Campbell question. It's yeah. vexed people for generations. Exactly. Anyway, what's your policy? <laughs> what, what, what are you at the next in the next leaders debate? We're going to go to the John Campbell question. Now, anyway, he, he called for John Campbell's brutal, decisive, and very public sacking. That's a direct uh-huh. quote. Said the government couldn't brook what he called one of its employees at what he also called its most potent communications medium, being so determined to undermine its agenda. Now, I take real issue with the idea that someone at TV. NZ is a government employee, at least not directly. Independence there is baked into its charter, as it is at RNZ. I also really object to the idea that TVNZ is a government communications medium. A government, the, the government's the word. There, well, I'm sure they it. would object to that no, there at TVNZ. Yeah. Like, that, that, this isn't North Korea, this isn't state media, mm-hmm. there's independence there and freedom to criticise the government is one of its most fundamental qualities. But I guess most pertinently, what uh, Carl Dufresne seems to have missed or disregarded is the word opinion in capital letters at the top of John Campbell's piece. Is that, that's an interesting point because is the thing, do you think, maybe that John Campbell is a well-known newsman and has made his name as a reporter and a presenter of what you would describe as sort of strive for the ideal of objective journalism and uh, the idea, I suppose, the, the philosophy that a, a, a good newsman shouldn't be writing a, opinion piece, you know, strident opinion piece. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, well, I mean, this is an opinion piece, so it shouldn't really be a crime that it contains opinion. It's clearly labelled as an opinion piece, but you're right. There's this wider tension here. Is it wrong for journalists to be expressing opinions, particularly when they're also charged with doing straight news coverage Mm. and objective reporting and... Look, sometimes I do like to try and get myself and to project other situations into the future, have empathy with other people, mm-hmm. know their minds, and if I, if I and see things from different people's point of view. I guess I can see if this was a different situation, and it was a prominent TVNZ columnist who was sharply critical of a right of a left wing government, then maybe there would be calls from the left for the sacking or outcry from the left over the bias as well. But look, I kind of think that these restrictions are unsustainable. I just don't think that it's 
really feasible to expect journalists to make their minds just a placid pool of pure neutrality and to never express an opinion. I think a more sustainable and honest approach would be to be willing to criticise, to express an opinion, to have an opinion, but be willing to be a fair broker, to call balls and strikes, to use an Americanism, or mm. to use something that you might be more familiar with, uh, to to call out a black cap LBW. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there was one. I know what you mean. Do you get that now? Like, yeah, if, I do. If you were umpire. And, I understand yeah, your sporting was, metaphor now, yeah. Yeah, Devin Conway. Yeah. So so what, you're suggesting that... that it's not necessarily – you can't insist that people don't have opinions. Um, well, it's kind of silly, isn't it? I well, mean, course, we, yeah. we do opinions are like there, there are some journalists who try to do that, like Peter Baker at the New York Times. He's, he says that he almost tries to empty his mind of any thoughts yeah. that might be biased. or He doesn't even express opinions around the dinner table at home. I, I just don't think that that's feasible. If you say that journalists can't express the opinion on paper, that doesn't mean that they don't have it in their head. Um, the, but isn't that the skill set of the journalist to to have their opinion and to, um, you know, to to hold and accept that they have their opinion, but to strive for the ideal of objectivity, or are you scathing of the idea of objectivity in and of itself? No, I think that that is absolutely correct. What you have to do is hold your opinion and be a fair broker. And I think John Campbell has shown that in the past he's painted Labour in particular as insipid, milk toast, cowardly mm. in recent opinion columns. I'd say he's also been quite critical of the Greens, maybe not recently, but he was one of the leaders when it came to uh, the Materia Today story. He prosecuted that very harshly. I don't know if people remember that. And look, I'm not going to sit here and I don't know his politics or anything like that, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that John Campbell's right wing. But I don't think it's... Uh, really feasible to expect expect them to never have an opinion, but rather to be willing to criticise everyone. It's less, don't have an opinion more, don't be a stooge. And if... And then it's then it's up to them to make sure that their reporting, their objective reporting, the neutral reporting, is actually fair to everyone involved. And it fairly takes in all of the views that... Uh, are on offer. And editors, I think, have a responsibility mm-hmm. here to step in if they feel that a journalist is being a stooge. Um, these were not the only issues of balance that the media had to address with its coverage of that particular hui. And, and also, uh, more recently, uh, Ratana, Hayden. Yeah, I thought um, just on this, Te Pāti Māori co-leader Debbie Ngādi Wapaka had a really interesting interview on Morning Report this week, and it was trotting along nicely uh, until she said this... I think what's more important is that the continual growth and leadership of our people finds us aligning with um, ourselves again, in particular in this this time and era when we have a government that is so anti-Māori and displaying all the traits of um, typical white supremacists. So that was a pretty, um, that was a term that she used and that came about two minutes into a six minute 30 interview and suffice to say, Ratana wasn't mentioned again. Corin Dan clearly felt that he couldn't let that statement pass without pushback. Uh, the entire rest of the interview was devoted to her use of the phrase traits of typical white supremacists. So I'm just going to play one clip uh, as an example of an exchange there. Are you proposing that 10,000 people mobilised for nothing and there was nothing that we had to talk about? Not at all. 
not at right. all. But they, I'm just saying, I'm just arguing back from their perspective that they they have a differing view, but that they would be, uh, you know, offended by the suggestion that in somehow that their policies are being driven on the basis of racial superiority. So that was just an example. Corin Dan later went on to say, look, it's just my job to challenge you on this, and the whole rest of the interview was... Uh, about it, was that, it was about that phrase, was it? Yes, and they clearly pro- decided that balance needed to be provided on the spot right there. I, I, I sympathise with Corin there because it's a live interview and when such a big... Inf- the news line after that interview is going to be the phrase mm. white supremacy um, or, or traits of typical white supremacists and he he clearly felt like that was something that he just couldn't let yes. slide, right? I was interested that... in your perspective of it as someone that actually does these live interviews. Would you just stop the interview there? Uh, because you, well, you, you can't can, let you it can go. Hear it. You can hear the headline go off, right? Yeah, you can, so you're exactly, like, yeah. well, this is what I have to address right now. And maybe you get criticism if you didn't address mm. that. Uh, do, well, is it right to do it in quite a confrontational way, though? Or, or would it have been better? I wondered, the only thing that I thought is, would it have been better? <laughs> I'm trying to do Corin Dan's job for me. Not He's sure. better at his job than me. Would it have been better to just say, hey, you've just said this, please explain. What do you actually mean by right, that? Yeah. Because it seemed like she was talking about uh, systemic, uh, not that these are people that are wearing white hoods and burning crosses on the hill, but yeah, really sure. systemic um, Pākehā, dominant modes of thinking in the government and uh, asserting Pākehā dominance through the government in systemic ways rather than that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a tr- it's a tricky situation to be in, isn't it? Because I suppose the point of the interview is not um, to get into a discussion of that, you know, whether this is the behaviour of typical white supremacists. There was, there was clearly a narrative for the interview to go through, and yet when something like that happens, it's almost like an emergency kind of situation. Oh my goodness, this person actually said this. We need to, we're expected on behalf of people who are politically opposed to them to demand an explanation. But does, but does yeah, that take absolutely, up the next four minutes of your audience? Yeah, but sure. this, I wonder whether you're hearing your audience here, which is, let's face it, predominantly Pākehā, mm. predominantly older, uh, recoiling at that term, which might not be so controversial to other segments of society that might not make up morning reports audience. Mm. Look, I, you know, is is it in a, in a way the fact that that term is so uh, shocking? It's a shocking term, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it makes you, it makes you that, sit up and that, take notice. Yeah. Is that Pākehā bias in a way? I'm just thinking on the spot. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. And I, I, I suppose it, it gets in as well to the idea that, that, or the question of, you know, these are politicians that we're talking about. I don't know what's in Tebi Ngārewa Pekka's mind, um, but... Um, politicians often come with quite sophisticated plans as to what they are going to say, and you can redirect an interview with a sensational turn of phrase as well. I don't know whether yeah. that might have has that idea crossed your mind in terms of this. Oh yeah, I hadn't really thought about it as a pre-planned sort of thing like that. No, I hadn't. I, I and I don't. I don't know if it was. I don't know whether it was either. That just occurred yeah. to me on the. On <laughs> yeah, the I wondered whether you where you draw the line. Mm. Anyway, we're running out of time. We are. Me. We are. Let's move yeah. on because um, one of the big media stories over the past well. Certainly, of the past six months or so, is is uh, Golris Garman and uh, these shoplifting allegations, and there has been a lot of criticism of the media as to how it handled these allegations. Uh, some right-leaning figures saying it uh, the media underplayed the situation. Some of the less saying it received blanket 
um, almost gleeful coverage. What did you make of this? I, uh, look, I saw criticism of this, yeah, as you say, from both sides. I I didn't think that the level of coverage was underplayed or, or overplayed. I thought the media, I mean, it's always going to be a huge, a huge story yeah. if a sizable political party's justice spokesperson is caught shoplifting. So on the face of it, that's just going to be a huge story. There's just nothing, no way around that. There have been things raised, though, that I do think are much more sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to the idea that there are systemic issues with how politicians like Golri's Garriman are treated in the media, but particularly on social media, mm-hmm. uh, that they're driven uh, to great lengths and perhaps put under huge pressure by the abuse that they receive. Mm. And, I mean, we've seen Simon Wilson writing about that in The Herald that he he, he mentioned, of course, you sometimes forget that James Shaw was bashed Punch to the face, in, at right, a bus yeah. stop in 2019. Yeah. I feel like we underplay that sometimes. But that person was, I think, chanting some conspiracy-adjacent right, stuff yeah. at the time. And, I mean, so there's reason to be fearful in some ways, and maybe that can provoke a strange response in some people. And I think this is a pernicious and long-term issue facing... Do, do, do you think that the social media element is the most... Um, is, is the biggest point? I, I guess what, what I'm saying is maybe previously these vicious, vitriolic, venomous things were the sorts of things that people might say together, say to each other at a pub or you know, on the phone or um, in, in passing when you're talking politics with your mates or something like that, and it would just, it would be uttered and some people might laugh and then it would fly into the ether and would and be lost forever. But now with social media, anyone can write whatever they like. They can often direct their message to the person that it's meant to be aimed and at. And they can build one on the other. Exactly. And so it, it takes on a different character. Mm. It's just, this is exactly the same mechanism is to what free speech campaigners always complain about, which is called cancellation, which is just social media mobs disagreeing with you en masse, right? But it's almost worse than that because cancellation was often counter-speech, argument, you know, condemnation of a point of view. Mm. This is just abuse. Mm. And it comes one after the other. And it ha- I've seen people retreat from public life and I've seen people act out of character. As it, Well, you can see that how it would make you act out of character if you're under that kind of pressure. Mm. And I see mostly women retreating from public life and public roles because of this, even if it's just a locked Twitter account or sometimes stepping down from public-facing um, events out of fear. Uh, yeah, I think this is a pernicious uh, freedom of speech issue, and it does affect people like Gauri's government, but it also affects female journalists, uh, black and brown journalists, public figures, that kind of thing. I guess this is where there's sort of a confluence with um, the mental health, what you might describe as the mental health argument. Like, Golra's government cited mental health issues to explain her actions. Maybe explain is not quite the right word, but you know what I mean there. As some politicians have done in the past. What did you make of that? Because there was some criticism that this was an overused excuse. Yeah, Andrea Vance, she was pretty scornful of politicians using mental health as cover when they get caught in a scandal. Uh, she said, you know, these things happen to everyone. We, it's a cheap excuse for those with, this is direct quote, with a casual attitude to rules that most people abide by. It undermines genuine victims, those who go through distress at some time in their life and are met with a much less forgiving reaction and an unresponsive mental health system. And, but maybe that's a bit scornful of politicians. I am weary of, because it does seem to get trotted out every time there is a political scandal. It's one of those things, isn't it, that, 
it, maybe it's something that we didn't pay attention to for a long, 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 long time, and then we started to pay a lot of attention to mental health. Yeah. Um, and perhaps there is a sense among some people that it's used as sort of like a get-out-of-jail-free card, yeah, a, a way to avoid scrutiny. Yeah, now you can't ask questions because of mental health. Yep. But look, I, to that argument, you'd have to retort, no one's got an out-of-jail-free. Yeah, right. Todd okay. Muller, he stepped down as national leader. He's stepped down from politics. Kitty Allen, Golris Garriman, they didn't get away scot-free. They're gone. They're probably not coming back to politics. Andrew Falloon, he doesn't have a career anymore. The list goes on. So, I mean, it, it may be a little dubious sometimes to just say, oh, my mental health uh, is suffering as a way of getting out of things. But uh, Mental I, health is health. It's it's yeah. true in a lot of cases, and it is um, a reason for things, and it is worse because of social media and the abuse that people get. And it's probably, even though it's tempting to see it with such cynicism, because it is such an important issue i'd probably say better to be safe than sorry be less cynical and and err on the side of caution there without removing the need for accountability and straight reporting thank you hayden that was fun thanks emil is your boy better now out of interest oh yeah he's great now he's great now that's what i like to hear